Um, tell me what you think. Give me a, a few thoughts after seeing the introduction there. <clears throat> well, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. That means that we approach Scripture with a great deal of humility, doesn't it? Um, because we want to hear from God rightly. We want to understand what God has said, so that way we can tell others what God has said rightly. Um, as a Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are a representative for God to the world. So we need to consider these things rightly. What, uh, at the beginning of the video, what's wrong with Ezekiel bread? Can you remember? What was the issue there? Yeah. <clears throat> so let's think, original context, what, what was the Ezekiel bread and Ezekiel 4 about? Just roughly. Well, judgment. Yeah. He had to cook the bread over dung. Anybody eating bread this week that was cooked over dung? Uh, no, right? It was a, a judgment a pronouncement of judgment. And so taking that and making a marketing thing out of it to sell bread is a wrong use of Scripture, isn't it? Abusive use of Scripture. What about verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, or Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not plans to harm you, but plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. How are those verses misused or abused sometimes? So context matters a little, huh? Yeah, it's, it's always interesting uh, when you see how, especially Jeremiah 29, 11 is used. Um, next time you see it being used somewhere, ask the person who has that verse, maybe tattooed or on a mug or something, do you know verses 10 or 12, the verse before, the verse after? Vast majority of the time, people have never looked at it. It's like, oh, this verse looks nice. I'm in a Christian store. It looks nice on a mug. It sounds nice. I want it. And don't even think about who Jeremiah even was, when he lived, why God said that to him, or any of those things. And so it's very important that we consider that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That can be used in so many wrong ways. Uh, Evander Holyfield, he showed that example. That's one of many. You see it in sports all the time. If guys have uh, eye black underneath, they'll sometimes write Bible verses on there. And it's what's implied is that I can go out and have victory in this game. Now, if they don't mean that, if they mean it within its context, that's another story. But if they're meaning it, I can go out and win this boxing match because Christ strengthens me. That's not what Paul meant when he wrote that verse. He wasn't talking about a boxing match. Actually, the only time Paul talks about boxing is in our passage today in 1 Corinthians. So, uh, there's just a little plug for the sermon. Um, some of the benefits of sound hermeneutics, do you remember what he said? He listed off five things. Some of the benefits from this study? Good. Yeah, the first two were to know God rightly and to know God better. Then he said to instruct our children rightly, to recognize and combat false teaching, and to show others the glory of God. Those are very important things, aren't they? We have to use the Bible to do these things, and we have to know what the Bible says and understand it rightly to do these things. What's the difference between inductive and deductive? He mentioned that toward the end, and exegesis and eisegesis, what's the, what's the difference? Well, 
You remember? Okay, so when you think inductive, think Sherlock Holmes. You ever read Sherlock Holmes, any of those things? He went out, he looked for evidence, he, he put the story together as he grabbed pieces, and then that formed the whole. If you understand the pieces, you can understand the whole. Now, what's deductive then? There you go. Deductive, in, in the philosophical realm, deductive reasoning is a legitimate form of reasoning in the world of philosophy. But when it comes to Scripture and how we to, are to interpret the Bible, we don't want to start off with a preconceived notion and then say, now let's find Scripture to support my notion. Now, we all have the propensity to do that. We all have the pull to do that because you have theological things you believe. And so, uh, even when he was talking there about the clear texts interpreting the unclear texts for us, well, how, who gets to decide which texts are the clear ones and which ones are the unclear ones? Sometimes we can just fall back on what we already believe and say, oh, see, these texts that agree with what I believe, those are the clear ones. <laughs> and the ones that, I don't, that say things I don't like, those are the unclear ones. We have to be careful with that. But we want to have a heart that says, I want to study God's Word and let the chips fall where they may, so to speak, in that where God leads me, I will go. Where God directs in His Word, that's where I will go with my theology. Are you a Ferrari? what's the biblical problem with telling people that they are Ferraris and that they will just recognize it if they hand Christ the keys well the problem is the gospel isn't it what is the God what's the bad news that people have to understand before they can hear the good news what is it you're not a Ferrari you're a smushed up old beater car in the dump spiritually speaking you are lost and dead in sin. You're a child of wrath. You're following the prince of the power of the air. You're walking in darkness. You love the darkness rather than the light. All these scriptures that tell us about the sinfulness of man. Then, if you, I don't even want to use the car analogy, because then it's you come to Christ and you're a new creation. And you are given the very righteousness of Christ. You're reconciled to God. That's the beautiful gospel message. But to walk around telling people, you're a Ferrari, you just don't realize it. But give the keys to Christ, and He'll drive you and steer you through this life like the Ferrari you really are. Yikes. If you ever hear that from this pulpit, whoever's preaching it, just shoot them and then drag them out, okay? That's just the easiest way to take care of that problem. But uh, let's grab your Bibles and let's look at three passages as we finish up, starting in the book of 2 Chronicles. And if you can't find where Second Chronicles is, look on the edge of your Bible pages, and the pages that look like they haven't been touched in years, that's Second Chronicles. And go to chapter 7, Second Chronicles chapter 7, and let's look at verse 14. And we're just going to practice some very basic hermeneutics here. We're not looking to you know, take over the world today. We're just getting our feet wet in hermeneutics. Let's just read this one verse, and here's what I want you to do. So listen up. The first time we read through this verse, I want you to look at it, ignoring all context. So imagine God just wrote this out on a slip of paper, and the paper floated down and landed on your lap. Here it is. Second Chronicles 7.14. Who can read that for us? Go ahead, Joseph. And my people. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. 
Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Okay. Ignoring all context. What does this verse potentially mean? What are some options for what it could mean? If America will humble itself and ah. come back to God, He will heal our land. Okay, because it does talk about land here, right? So uh, we couldn't say potentially this means necessarily the church, the, unless we're talking about a local church, our two-acre property that we're on right now. But yeah, uh, this could mean America. If America, who are, of course, God's people, would just repent, then God would heal our land. And we'd have prosperity in America. That's a potential meaning. Any other potential meanings? That's the main one I was looking for, but any other ones? There was a uh, billboard for a time, and maybe it's still up, between Sedalia, Missouri and Windsor, Missouri, that had this verse on the billboard, and the background had a waving American flag. Okay. Well, now let's look at context, and let's see... Could that verse mean that? Well, who is this promise for? God says, my people. And we're in the book of 2 Chronicles. So we're in the Old Covenant. Who are God's people in the book of 2 Chronicles? Yeah, say it more confidently. Yeah, Israel. Okay, the Israelites. Because He had given them a land, didn't He? He set out the boundaries of the land. He gave them that land. And he says that if my people, his people Israel, who are called by my name, that's Israel. And when you start thinking this way in the context, it becomes really difficult to see how this could be America, right? (laughs) Who would ever assume that America is God's people? Well, a lot of American Christians do. Well, we're Americans. We're God's people. No, that's not how that works. If my people, the Israelites, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn... From their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So what land is this? Is it from Alaska to Florida? Is it South Africa? Is it China? No. It's a specific land, isn't it? This isn't a fill-in-the-blank with whatever land you want it to be, is it? This is God talking to Israel about the land that He gave them. And you start thinking through the other aspects of the verse, well, okay, apparently their land is in a state where it needs to be healed, so what's going on in Israel? If God's saying, look, I will heal your land if you do this, well, that means they must be in bad shape. It says that they need to turn from their wicked ways. Apparently, the nation as a whole was turned from God doing things that they shouldn't have done. They were rebelling against His commands. There's context to that, and this is a promise of that stems from the faithfulness of God to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. It's not just a catch-all verse that you could use for any nation you want and say, see, this is God's promise to you. Now, are there principles that we can draw out of that and apply to other situations? Yes. If we ever say of any scripture in the Bible, there's no principle you can get out of that and apply to your life, well, then we should just rip it out of the Bible then, right? There are always principles that we can draw and see and learn things about God. And in this, we do see the faithfulness of God to His people. In the Old Covenant, He had covenanted with the people, and He was faithful to them. And He was good. He gave them this promise that He was willing to heal their land on the condition of repentance. And so there are all sorts of applications you can make. But if you skip all of the context and you skip all of the principle-finding efforts and just say, 
well, there it is, America. Abortion, homosexuality, all of our wicked ways. If we would just turn from them, then God would bless our country and we would be healed. Now, again, are there principles to all this? Sure. Is this the verse, that the one catch-all verse to go to and say, this is God's promise for America? No. No, it is not. We have to be so careful. Mark. a preconceived notion they had, and they said, well, look, I found a verse that supports my preconceived notion. It's all deductive. But if you're inductive and you say, okay, I'm reading through this passage, because if you're doing inductive Bible study, you're never just flipping, pointing to a verse and saying, oh, this is a good verse. You're studying books as a whole, chapters as a whole, verses fit in the context of those things, and you draw out the meaning that way. But to start with saying, well, look, America needs to repent, and then God would bless us, Flip, flip, flip. Oh, look, that verse supports that. That's deductive, and we don't want to do that. Carrie. I'm just thinking about the verse that says the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's where... Well, it's Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hebrews 13.8 is the verse there. But it's His Word, so yes. I mean, it's not that you're wrong. It's just the, the verse says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. When I read my scriptures, I mean, even, even, you know, God created man and woman, the first thing seems extremely relevant to today's sure. million genders. Yeah. Yes, and, and there is absolutely direct application there, God's intent and His design. You know, we, we can turn to Genesis and do that. Um, but if we take a promise that was made to another person, person or another people at a specific time for a specific purpose and apply that promise wrongly to other people, then we've misused Scripture, okay? Let's, let me show you another one. You, this is one you may not be as familiar with, and it's in the book of Psalms. Psalm 46, verse 5. So again, we're going to look at this verse without context, so we're just going to read it. And you'll, you're going to first be a bad Bible student, and then you'll be a good Bible student, okay? Psalm 46, 5, reading it the first time as a bad Bible student. And we'll just look at the one verse, because that's what bad Bible students do, is look at just one verse, okay? And would someone read that for us? Psalm 46, verse 5. Who's got it? Go ahead, Mike. God is in the midst of her. She will not be Okay. Now, how could you interpret that verse in such a way that if you were a young woman, you'd want to get that tattooed on yourself? <laughs> you will not be moved. Very good. Yes. Boy, it would be nice if that was a promise, huh? Uh, yeah. Or perhaps this could be interpreted that the woman of God who's just devoted to God He's just going to be with her in such a way that nothing's going to shake her up. 
She's going to go through this life without doubting. She's going to be so strong. Is that the her that this verse is talking about? Well, let's look back and find some context here. Who is the her according to the verse right before? Yes, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What's the city of God in the Old Covenant? What's the city, the capital city of Israel? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And over and over again in the Old Testament, and even some in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, you have this connection that Jerusalem is the city of God, or Zion, the city of God. We're talking about a city, a dwelling place where multiple people are, and the city itself is personified as a her. It's a grammatical tool. Remember, a hermeneutic is grammatical and historical. So we look at this and we see a basic literary device used personifying a city as a she. And the church is sometimes referred to as a her. And Israel is referred to as a her and sometimes as a him. It's not talking about an individual woman that to you, as an individual woman who loves the Lord, that this promise now is for you. This promise in its context is for the city of God, Zion. But you'll see this verse come up from time to time on tattoos and t-shirts and all this stuff because it's very popular to think that this verse is for me. And you'll see that being a common issue in these misinterpretations. I'd say 99% of the time when someone misapplies a Bible verse, it's because that person is seeking to apply it directly to himself or herself and elevates himself or herself over the context of Scripture because, well, this is a personal note to me. That's how they approach the Bible. This is a personal note to me, so this must be talking to me. God isn't always talking to us. In fact, in the vast majority of the Old Testament, the words of God recorded was Him talking to Israel or Him talking to someone else. And again, we study it because there are principles to draw out and apply but we don't read it like, well, this is God's message for me today, that God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Have to have context. One more, 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> and this one is often misused. <coughs> we are going to look not even at a whole verse, now, now you know we're really messing things up. We're not even looking at a whole verse. We're just going to look in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. I want someone to read the first three words of 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Three words. Who's got it? Not from the King James. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13. Is that where you are? 1 Corinthians 13, 8? 1 Corinthians 13, 8. I think you're in the wrong verse. Michaela, you got it? There you go. Love never fails. Is that what the, that should be what the NASB says? Okay, there you go. Okay, so now, put your bad Bible student glasses on or hat on or whatever. Love never fails, especially in this day and age. Tell me what this could mean. Okay, love is love. That's a popular slogan today, isn't it? Which means there are no rules. You've got a man with a man, a woman with a woman, a man with three women, a woman with three men, a man with his pony, whatever. Love never fails. 
Love never fails. And we giggle, rightly so, but it is real. This is happening. Love never fails. What else could this mean? Love never fails. Wrongly, what could this mean? Okay, good. Yes, Jesus is love. God is love. And God never fails. Therefore, all people are saved because at the end of the day, God is love. And many people who try to erase the doctrine of hell, this is their type of argument that they use, is they say, well, look, okay, yeah, they didn't accept Jesus. In fact, they heard the gospel and totally willfully, utterly rejected it. But God is love. God is love, and love never fails. Wow. Okay, let's talk about context now. Be a good Bible student. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians in our sermon series. We haven't gotten to 13 yet, but what's going on in verse 13? You've heard lots of things from verse 13 before. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not puff up, etc. He's talking about what, what love, um, what is he talking about marriage, parenting, what? It's not marriage, it's not parenting. What kind of love is he talking about? Okay, manifested where? The relationship between believers and the body. Okay, he is talking about church issues. So if you have headings in your Bible, maybe look over chapter 12. You see he's talking about the use of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He's talking about how we all have different gifts, but there's one body. In chapter 14, he's back to talking about spiritual gifts, and he's got instructions for the church in chapter 14. In between these two chapters, talking about many different members but one body, we have this chapter about love. It's about love in the church as we come together as different people with just one body, we're the body of Christ, we are to have the love of God reflected in our relationships. Now, is it wrong to read this passage at a wedding? No. But it needs to be explained, okay? Because you read through, and this is a fantastic passage, isn't it? Starting at verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, does not brag, it is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, etc., etc. Uh, can you have it up on your wall in your home? Well, of course you can. Yes. All of those things are wonderful and good and true about love, and those those uh, definitions of love can be applied in all those different places. But if you just turn to 1 Corinthians 13 because you need to find a verse for your wedding invitation, and you say, hey, this sounds good, and you throw it on there, and you have no idea what 1 Corinthians is about, you're using the Bible wrongly, aren't you? And especially when you get to verse 8, and you see that love never fails, and you say, oh, that's an amazing verse, and this is where perhaps some people would say, see, love never fails. That's clear. I'm going to use the clear verse to interpret all the unclear things like hell. Uh, love never fails, therefore there is no hell. You're using Scripture wrongly. That is not what Paul intended when he wrote love never fails. If you say love never fails, well, that means homosexuality is fine because homosexual relationships are just a reflection of the same love that heterosexual relationships have. Therefore, we're going to take this clear verse to interpret all the unclear ones about homosexuality. Wrong. That wasn't even on Paul's radar as he was writing that section of the letter. He talks about homosexuality earlier in the letter, in chapter 6. He talks about homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there you go. There's a tough one if you want to interpret verse 13 or chapter 13, verse 8 that way. So we have to always consider the context of a whole book 
chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's how we establish context, and we can do the best we can to interpret things rightly. Now, will there always be things that we're going to be wrong on when it comes to interpreting Scripture? Say yes, loudly. Yes. Okay, thank you. Now, are we going to know what those are? <laughs> well, yes, sometimes we'll run into, oh, I've been wrong about this, I need to change. But for the things that you're holding on to now that you're wrong about, do you know that you're wrong about them? No! Otherwise, why would you be holding on to them, right? And that is how it's going to be throughout your whole life. However, there are things that are just absolutely clear in Scripture that go beyond hermeneutics, that go beyond biblical interpretation, that man is sinful. Can you read the Bible in any legitimate way and come away saying, man doesn't have sin? Well, no. It's exceedingly clear, isn't it? Or how about Jesus is God and He died in our place for our sins on the cross and rose again on the third day? Can you approach Scripture in any legitimate way and then walk away and saying, hey, I don't believe any of that. I don't think the Bible teaches any of that. Well, no, the Bible plainly teaches that. Or justification by faith, that we are made right with God by faith alone. Isn't that clear beyond any type of interpretive grid? Yes, it is. But then there are other things that our hermeneutic really comes to play in, like um, Matthew chapter uh, 16, when Peter is told that he's the rock. Is he told that he's the rock? Or is it the statement that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Because Jesus replies and says, I say to you, you are Simon Barjona, the son of Jonah, and on this rock I will build my church. Is he talking about building the church on Peter or building the church on the statement Peter made that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Our hermeneutics going to come into play and we're going to have some disagreements with fellow believers on passages like that. And one of us is going to be wrong, at least. Maybe both of us are wrong, but we both can't be right. And so you're going to have to get comfortable with the idea that there are some things where you're going to have to just study, develop some confidence and say, this is what I believe the Scriptures teach, but hold it more loosely than things like the gospel itself, okay? Any thoughts or questions as we finish up? Steve. Well, I was reading this thing about charity, and I'm thinking, where it says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I have not charity, possibly nothing. Yes. So charity must be the Spirit of God. Yep. And Jesus come to your life, and that's the charity. Yeah. Because if you if you give all your stuff to the poor, you, you know, to feed the poor, but you have not charity, and you don't have the spirit of Jesus in you, then you're nothing. Yes, that's it. And that's the idea as he's teaching this to the church. You all come together. Everything that you do, perhaps religiously or things that you think you're doing for God with your brain thinking this way or that way about these things or how you serve, none of that matters if you don't have gospel love, right? Yeah. That's the whole point. Absolutely. Two greatest gifts, love God with all your heart, might find the strength, love your fellow man yourself. Yes, yep. That's charity. Yep, the great commandment, and the second is like it. Good. Anything else? Okay. Hermeneutics, you've been introduced. Now, let me tell you about next week. That lesson is going to be a little more difficult. He is going to give a background of 
different hermeneutics as they've been developed through church history, different ways of interpreting Scripture. It's, you, you might be tempted to snooze on that one a little bit because it's more academic, it's more historical, but it's important. If you can muscle your way through that one, having these first two lessons down, the other lessons are going to be much easier, okay? But the next week is going to be a little bit tough. You've been warned, okay? <laughs> so why don't I pray and then we'll dismiss for some coffee and stuff. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in preserving your word for us that we can look into it and learn so much each and every time we study. We ask that we would rightly divide the word as you uh, have called believers to do, to understand Scripture correctly, that we would have that desire within us so that we would know you rightly and know you better. Lord, we ask that today as we look into your word in the sermon time and uh, for anything else that's going on today, when your word is referenced or opened or whatever it may be, that we would prioritize interpreting it and using it and applying it rightly for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.